Nah, I don't ask. What is that? Fuck you, I won't do what they tell me. are open the sun's shining have my hair cut your hair looks amazing you look amazing you look like the sunshine i look like the sunshine i don't feel like it it's like a gothy sunshine oh gothy punky sunshine gothy punky sunshine that's me (laughs) (laughs) oh so Mm. last week we did the last of the series in disasters we did and I feel like you went first and I went last because you said I told a beautiful, uplifting story where nobody died. <laughs> I told a story where nearly everyone died, yeah. Yeah, um, crushed by your story. So this week, I'm going to kick us off with monsters. This is the anxious time where I'm hoping we haven't done the same story. I'm pretty sure we won't have. Uh, oh my God, what have we had? I'm not sure. <clears throat> okay, well, shall I reveal my monster? Yes, yeah, my heart's beating quite fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you about H.H. H. Holmes, the hotelier. This is definitely different. And I'm very <laughs> excited. <laughs> okay. Herman Webster Mungett, better known as H.H. H. Holmes, was arrested in 1894. But this wasn't the first time the hotelier had been arrested. But it was the last, as he was sentenced to death. Oh, God. That's not the end of the story. Okay, good. (laughs) Sounds like so many questions. (laughs) His strange and creepy tale, somewhat horror movie-like in style, begins... Well, at at the beginning. (laughs) Good. Good story construct. Holmes was uh, born in New Hampshire in the United States of America. And that was on May the 16th in 1861. He was a middle child, which I believe you also are a middle child. No. Shit, I really should listen to you when you tell me about your family. Are you the How many brothers have I got? You've got four brothers. Yeah. That's your dog. That's Blim counting. Four. Five. <laughs> No, Blim, Blim, definitely four. Four brothers, not five, mate. Mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> so he was the middle child of a well-off, devout Methodist family. Um, he wasn't the most popular kid at school, but he was smart and he was charming. He also had a lazy eye, so he was part of my boss eye crew. But um, he isn't a top member, and I think we should, as the Boss Eye crew, I think we should really revoke his membership. I would. It sounds like if he's been sentenced to death, he's yeah, done something he very bad. Some bad stuff. So, um, okay. He's out of the crew. He's out of the crew. He's no longer in the Boss Eye crew. At the age of 16, Holmes graduated from the Philip Exeter Academy and t- took up a, pe- a, peaching? a teaching post in the <laughs> local town. <laughs> So at 16, he was already teaching in the local town. He also did some odd jobs on a local farm, and that is where he fell in love with Miss Clara Lovering. Side gossip, Sarah. 
she was already seeing another guy who was working on the mm-hmm. party, but he was a total small town dick and he was always talking shit about Clara and Holmes, who's this young guy in love. And so he called out this dick and he was like, hey, don't talk shit about my woman. And Clara oh my God. was like bowled over by this gesture. Um, and so on the 4th of July, 1878, they got married. And a year later, they had a son. So after uh, he got married and had a kid, Holmes enrolled in the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. And he graduated in June 1884. College mates described Holmes as treating Clara violently. And in 1884, that year, the same year he graduated, uh, just before he graduated, um, she'd seen all the red flags she needed to, and she packed up and she shipped off back to New Hampshire oh, with girl. her son. Yeah, well done, Clara. After this, Holmes decided to travel the United States of America, clear his mind, see some of the great country and get some perspective. In New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had uh, been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place and Holmes quickly left town and he travelled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and he got a job as a keeper in the state hospital but he quit a few days later. He later took a position in a drugstore in Philadelphia But uh, while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased in the store. Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city. But before moving to Chicago, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes, which is why we know him as H.H. Holmes. Maybe he was feeling a little bit lonely and missing the companionship of a wife so, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Mitra. Mitra, M-Y-R-T-A, Mirta? Mirta? I'm going to call her Mirta. So, he married Mirta in 1886. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Mirta, alleging oh, infidelity. Not it's not the right way to do it, is it? Definitely bigger me. The claim could not be proved and the lawsuit went nowhere. And it seems that Clara may never have been served and knew nothing of the court proceeding or her creepy ex's new marriage. Anyway, Holmes had a daughter with Myrta. Now, Holmes lived with Myrta and daughter Lucy in um, Illinois, but spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. And Holmes was not satisfied with having a wife in New Hampshire and in Illinois, so he married Georgina uh, York on the 17th of January, 1894, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So he still had Clara and Myrta, and now he had Georgia too. He's collecting wives. He sure was a wife collector. Whilst in Chicago, he came across Elizabeth S. Holton and her drugstore. Elizabeth gave Holmes a job. And he proved to be a hardworking employee and eventually buying the store from Elizabeth and her husband. This charming moustache boss-eyed boy was working wonders, wives aplenty and property too. Holmes was on a roll, so he purchased an empty lot across from the drugstore. He had big plans, Sarah, big plans. 
He was going to build a two-story mixed-use buildings with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore on the ground floor. But then inspiration struck and he decided to add a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel. Okay. Now, Holmes' vision for his hotel was a little bit different from a regular hotelier's plan. He wasn't going to rely on word of mouth, reviews, or even returning customers. You see, H.H. Holmes had built a murder hotel. Oh, my God. Or as he called it, his murder castle. He called it that? Yeah, mate. Wow. There were soundproofed rooms, a maze of hallways, some of which that led to dead ends. Many of the rooms were fitted with chutes that would drop straight down into the basement where homes had vats of acid, quicklime, and even a crematorium to dispose of his victims' Jesus. bodies. Can you imagine what the TripAdvisor write-up would be? I mean, who would do it? Because nobody's going to get out of there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, one room could be heated. Sorry, I should be laughing. It's awful. One room could be heated up to cook his guests alive. He had gas chambers and complex Jesus. machines designed to kill in the slowest and most painful way possible. Wow. Holmes had surgical tables and array of medical tools to dissect bodies before selling their organs and bones onto the black market and to medical institutions. So really, he was a jack of entrepreneur. Yeah, well, I'm just about to say he was an entrepreneur, <laughs> hotelier, pharmacist, murderer, black body, bo black market body seller, fraudster, teacher, and of course a farmer too. So he got by that. Yeah, he really had a lot of trade. Ooh. One Some of CV. Holmes' early murder victims was his mistress. So he had all these wives, but he also had a mistress. Julia Smythe. Um, when Julia's husband found out about the affair, I'm sorry, Blim seems to be counting again. <laughs> Thanks, baby. So um, when Julia's husband found out about the affair, he left Julia and her daughter, Pearl, and they moved into the hotel. And Julia continued her relationship with Holmes. But Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve in 1891. Holmes later claimed she had died during an abortion that went wrong. Um, though what truly happened to the two was never confirmed. Did they know what was going on in his don't think murder so. castle? I don't, not until later on. Okay, not until it's too late. Yeah. Another woman who vanished and was linked to Holmes was Edna Van Tassel. Um, and she is also believed to be among Holmes's many victims. In 19... In, sorry, in 1893, an actress named Minnie Wills Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her at the employment office. He offered her a job at his hotel as his PA, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Minnie to transfer the deeds of her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, which was really Holmes. He was well He's got another name. It's his other alias. He had so many different aliases. Oh, okay. The next month, Holmes and Minnie were calling each other husband and wife. They had set up home in a flat in Chicago, and Minnie's sister Annie came to visit. And after that, they were never seen again. 
Holmes had been on the wrong side of the law a few times. Insurance fjord? Insurance fraud. Insurance fjords. (laughs) Those famous insurance fjords. Insurance fjords, yes, they're very nice. Um, Bigamy, obviously, and even a plot to fake his own death. Oh, and Larson too. He really had it all. Uh, He'd become pally with a guy called Benjamin uh, Pietzel, P-I-T-E-Z-E-L. I'm calling him Pietzel. Mm -hmm. He was a carpenter with a criminal past. And the pair worked together on scams and crimes. um, And then inspiration again struck. Oh, no. Yeah. Benjamin was going to try and fake his own death. And Holmes, well, he would share the insurance payout. So this is the... You'd never make that arrangement, though, would you? (laughs) I know, right? Your mate is dodgy as fuck. So this was the plan. Benjamin agreed to fake his own death so his wife could collect 10K life insurance policy, which his wife would then... probably a lot back then. Oh, my God, it'd been like a million pounds. Or more. Why is he worth so much? <laughs> well, his wife then would split this with Holmes. Benjamin was going to set himself up as an inventor under the name of P. B. F. Perry. And he was going to be killed and hideously disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes, his job was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Benjamin. But instead, Holmes just killed Benjamin. He knocked him out with chloroform and set his body on fire. Oh, my God. Yeah, great friend. He, Holmes, collected the insurance payout and he lied to Benjamin's wife that Benjamin was still alive and hiding out in London. Holmes also convinced Benjamin's wife to let him look after three of her children, Alice, Nellie and Howard. Yeah. Holmes would later confess to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside and gassing them. So, Frank Geyer, G-E-Y-E-R, Geyer? I'm going to call him Geyer. Yeah, he sounds a bit French. Yeah. Um, he was a Philadelphia police detective. He also had an impressive moustache. And he was mm. assigned, assigned to investigate homes and find the three missing children. And he said, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the odour became. And when we reached the depth of three feet we discovered what had happened to the bone. Well, we discovered, sorry, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a college. College? Cottage. There they found the remains of the missing Howard boy. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the chimney. Holmes' murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November the 17th, 1894. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas. So better watch out, Sarah. Horse thieves are about. Following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's body, in the, the Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes's building, the murder castle. Mm. Um, though many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found that could convince Holmes in Chicago. And in October 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin. Uh, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident that Holmes had also murdered the three missing Petzl children. Holmes confessed 
to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis and Toronto, although some of the people he confessed to murdering happened to be still alive. So he might just be making some of this stuff up. Holmes gave, gave various contradictory accounts of his life, initially claiming innocence, and that would later change the fact that he was possessed by Satan himself. On the 7th of May, 1869, Holmes was hung for the murder of Benjamin. Until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm. His death didn't go as planned. It wasn't quick, and it didn't, well, it didn't end quickly. On the 7th of March, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported the death of Patrick Quillen, the former caretaker of the castle. His body was found in his bedroom and a note read, I couldn't sleep. Quinn's surviving relatives claimed that he'd been haunted for several months and was suffering oh from hallucinations. So I don't know if there were ghosts or whatever hanging around oh. in the murder castle. The castle itself, well, it survived an arson attack in 1895. And another weird happening was in 2017. Allegations were made that Holmes had in fact escaped execution, but his body uh, had been buried. So they exhumed his body and they tested it. And because his coffin had been um, contained in cement, he was found to have not fully decomposed. Clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his moustache was found to be intact. And he said in one of his letters, he said, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil on on evil one standing as my sponsor beside my bed where I was ushered into the world and he has been with me ever since. Wow. And that is the creepy story of H.H. H. Holmes, the hotelier. Wow, that was... I'm really sorry. Sorry, both our dogs are pretty barky tonight. Yeah, Stephen's just got home. Oh, well, that's something to shout about. And hear my story about a monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine's a survival story, Aww. but not everyone survives, but... At least someone does. So my story is pretty horrendous, I'm afraid. Okay, hit me up with your horrible, horrible tale. It was about a monster, um, so it meets the criteria. Excellent. Okay. She spent the first five years entirely alone. He hardly ever spoke to her. <gasps> Elizabeth helped her father, Joseph Fritzel, fix the door on his new cellar. Then her world went dark. So, yeah, my story is that of Joseph Fritzl. He was born on the 9th of April, 1935 in, in Austria. In 1956, at the age of 21, he married 17-year-old Rosemary, with whom he had three sons and four daughters, including Elizabeth, who was born on the 6th of April, 1966. Fritzl reportedly began abusing Elizabeth in 1977 when she was just 11 years old. Sorry, it's just... I mean, all abuse is awful, but when you start looking at incest, it, it becomes a different kind of mm. awful. Yeah, agreed. Um, so it seemed an innocent enough request. Could she help him hoist a door into its frame? 
Um, so Elizabeth followed her father down into the bowels of the cellar that he had been building for months in the garden beneath the family home. So this was on the 28th of August in 1984 and after she turned 18. Um, he, so he lured her into the basement saying he needs help with the door. Um, and this was the last piece needed to seal what would turn out to be the chamber where Elizabeth was held captive. After Elizabeth held the door in place, while Fritzl fitted it into the frame, he held an ether-soaked towel on his daughter's face until she was unconscious and then threw her into the chamber. So just for some, I suppose, context. So August 1984, it was the month that Prince released um, Purple Rain. It was the year that I was born. It was the year that I was born. Um, the space shuttle Discovery took off on its maiden voyage. Um, so, you know, this is how long ago. Yeah, not that Luxury. long ago. Mm. Um, it was a deeply cruel start to an unbelievably cruel deed. How could Elizabeth have known that she was helping her own father install the final building block to his plans to lock her up as his sex slave? So Fritzl had been planning what was effectively a dungeon for years, receiving official permission to construct his cellar complex as far back as the 70s. So this happened in 84. He's been planning it since the 70s. That's really messed up. If you think about how old she must have been when he started planning it, she was only 18 when this happened. Yeah. Um, It was not difficult to get officials to prove underground constructions. It was at the height of the Cold War. Everyone would be like, cool, no, it seems like legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so nuclear bunkers were seen as an even more normal and necessary addition to an Austrian home. Um, then we would like have a conservatory or yeah, yeah, kitchen extension, you know. Um, the local council had even given him a grant of a couple of thousand pounds. Oh, getting started. Towards the building costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neighbours had observed with some intrigue as the electrical engineer hired a digger, which sat in his garden for months. They watched as he tossed tons of earth from beneath the house and shifted it into wheelbarrows to make way for the rooms he planned to build. A precise planner, he had thought of every last detail, securing concrete and steel supplies through contacts at construction companies where he previously worked. So there were initially two access points, a heavy hinged door and a metal door reinforced with concrete, operable via a remote control device. A total of eight doors had to be opened before reaching the purpose-built cellar. The final door before the darkness of the tomb-like cellar was the one that Elizabeth and herself unwittingly helped him to install. So there's no getting out of this. No. There's eight eight doors just to get in and they're reinforced. Well, and they're really heavy as well, aren't they? Like Yeah. After Elizabeth's disappearance, her mother, Rosemary, filed a missing persons report. Almost a month later, Fritzl handed over a letter to the police, the first of several that had forced Elizabeth to write while in captivity. The letter postmarked Branau stated that Elizabeth was tired of living with her family and was staying with a friend. She warned her parents not to look for her or she'd leave the country. Fritzl told police that she'd most likely joined a religious cult. Oh my God. Unfortunately, this was easy enough to instigate. Elizabeth had threatened to run away many times. More than once, she'd been hauled back to the family home by the police or her father, once getting as far as the city of Vienna with a girlfriend. So when Elizabeth disappeared from one day to the next, he told friends and family she'd run off to join the cult and they all believed him. In reality, she was living under their feet beneath the garden where he and the rest of the family enjoyed barbecues in the summer. Years later, when he expanded the underground accommodation, he built a swimming pool upstairs as a cover-up for the amount of earth he was having to drag up. (gasps) Later, when they splashed in the pool, the family did so above Elizabeth's prison. That's... So... 
remember he's got other sons and daughters the family have just carried on yeah having this nice life while she's trapped you just wonder like obviously the abuse started early for elizabeth mm. it's just so strange that he just chose her mm-hmm. yeah that's really yeah monstrous he is a monster yeah um, so over the next 24 years, the horror for Elizabeth was unrelenting. The cold, the damp, the rats, which she was sometimes forced to catch with her bare hands. The water that ran off the walls in such large quantities, she had to use towels to soak it up. Summer, when the place turned into an intolerable sweaty sauna, was the worst time of year, she would later write in the calendar. So she, it's, he, you know, he's built this but it, it's not. Yeah, he's not made it. It's not habitable, no. He's not built it well. No. So over the years, you've got to think of all the things that have happened um, when Elizabeth was down in, in that basement and time stood still for her, didn't it? Yeah. So, you know, she missed all these great historical events like Chernobyl's nuclear reactor blowing up. Um, DNA being used to convict criminals, the Berlin Wall fell. Well, just and also um, like just little things like yeah. graduating school, going out yeah. for a drink for the first time with your mates, you know. The thing just all the technology and everything. She was she was there for 24 years. Um at first Fritzel strapped up her arms and then tied them behind her back with an iron chain, which he then secured to metal posts behind her bed. She could only move approximately half a metre either side of the bed. It's not enough to be locked in a cellar with eight doors to get through. He's, he's yeah. chained her to a bed. Well, he's punishing her as well, isn't he? After two days, he gave her more freedom of movement by attaching the chain around her waist. Then, about six to nine months into her imprisonment, he removed the metal chain because, and I quote, it was hindering his sexual activity with his daughter. Oh. He sexually abused and raped her sometimes several times a day from the second day of her incarceration right up until her re- release in April 2008. Over the course of nearly a quarter of a century, he would rape her at least 3,000 times, resulting in seven babies who themselves often had to watch the abuse as they grew older. Three of these children would stay underground, never seeing daylight until their release in April 2008. Three others mysteriously appeared on the doorstep of Fritzl and his wife, Rosemary, in their home in Amstetten in the west of Vienna, abandoned, so Fritzl told the community, by Elizabeth, who had delivered them to him and Rosemary from the cult to be brought up as a Fritzl's own, and all without arousing Rosemary's suspicions what or those of the Austrian authorities, I know. Um... So Fritzl would dictate letters to her, which she wrote from her prison, driving sometimes miles in his car to post them back to his wife, Rosemary. In them, Elizabeth explained that she was well, but could not look after the children. In reality, she was torn at being separated from her children, but happy that her upstairs offspring would at least have a better life than those languishing downstairs. One of the children, a twin called Michael, died shortly after his birth in the cellar in 1996. He had severe breathing difficulties and expired in his mother's arms when he was just 66 hours old. Fritzl admitted he subsequently burned the baby's body in an incinerator, but until his admission during his trial, he'd always denied that he was responsible for murder through negligence. Um, 
And he said in court, I don't know why I didn't help. I just overlooked it. I thought the little one would survive. And also until he was in court, he denied enslavement. His lawyer, Rudolf Mayer, tried to explain Fritzl's decision to imprison his daughter and force her to submit to his every whim as the act of a devoted father. What? I mean, you're really clutching at fucking straws there, mate. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like think about poor Rudolf's job. Like, you're going to have to try and it's his job to defend him. Like, there's not any excuses that come to mind to kind of make that open. And loads of, you know, you've got all these children. That's quite good evidence, isn't it? Yeah. You know, quick DNA test. I know, who's so devoted? His lawyer tried to paint him as a caring man who spent time and money maintaining both of his families. (laughs) He even took a Christmas tree down into the dungeon. Oh, how nice. So he spent all that time building a dungeon and then he put a Christmas tree in it. He sounds great. He also took the school books and a canary. And in um, now what seems like a sick joke, he said that the canary's ability to survive was proof that the air in the cellar could not have been that bad after all. God. So throughout her ca- captivity, he re- repeatedly threatened Elizabeth by saying, if you do not do as I say, your treatment will get worse and we, you will not escape from the cellar anyway. He repeatedly beat and kicked her. He also subjected her to humiliate, humiliating sexual abuse. Um, including forcing her to reenact scenes from violent pornographic films. The abuse left her with serious lasting physical injuries and psychological damage. She spent the first five years entirely alone. He hardly ever spoke to her. Um, and then the babies started to come. They were a horror for her, but they also provided her with longed-for company and a purpose to live after years in which she'd contemplated suicide. So the births that happened over the 12 years all took place without any medical help. To prepare for them, he, uh, her father provided her with disinfectant, a dirty pair of scissors and a 1960s book on childbirth. Fritzl would often threaten Elizabeth and her children, warning them that if they tried to escape, they'd be killed. Um, and he told them that he'd installed a system so that the doors would give them electric shocks if they tried to open them and that poison would be released into the cellar oh if they tried God. to escape. Yeah, that would kill them all instantly. So he would punish her by switching off all the power to the cellar for days at a time. So she was left alone in total darkness. She cried as the freezer he later installed so that they could stockpile food when he went away on holiday, defrosted and leaked its contents onto the floor of the already horrendously damp prison. It sounds awful. I didn't realise it. I knew it was bad because I knew the story, but I didn't realise it was this bad. Um, so the end of her ordeal finally came in April 2008 when Kirsten, her 19-year-old daughter, became gravely ill. Fritzel, not known for his mercy in the past, put her in his Mercedes and drove her to the hospital. There, the doctors became deeply suspicious of the deadly pale creature with bad teeth who lay dying in intensive care. Oh, shit. Yeah, repeated media... Remember, she's never seen daylight. No. Repeated media appeals are broadcast for the mother to come forward with information that was necessary if they're going to have any chance of saving her life. Elizabeth and her two boys viewed the appeals on the television in their cellar. She pleaded with her father to let her out. His powers waning, his ability to keep two families sustained, reducing by the day as he aged and his heart grew weaker. He'd already begun to hatch a plan as to how he could release his daughter without too many questions being asked. He relented, perhaps for the first time ever. He told the hospital that the family had appeared on his doorstep having escaped from the cult. I mean, is he a... Okay, yeah, he's using the cult excuse, okay. But the doctors and the police did not believe his story. At the hospital, Elizabeth was whisked into a room away from her father where 
police threatened to charge her with child abuse because of the way she'd clearly neglected her daughter. Elizabeth said she had a completely different tale from the one they expected to hear. She would start to tell them only on one condition, that they promised her she would never have to set eyes on her father again. She's so brave. So just a bit of a a timeline um, before I go on. So in 1977, Fritzl starts abusing his 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. In 1980, his mom dies. In 1981-82, he starts to turn the hidden cellar into a prison cell. And then it's in 1984 that he lures her down into the basement and imprisons her. Right. So then 19, November 1986, she has a miscarriage in the 10th week of pregnancy. 30th of August 1988, Kirsten is born and lives in the cellar until 2008 when she ends up in hospital. 1st of February 1990, Stefan is born and he stays in the cellar too. 29th of August 1992, Lisa is born. And in May 1993, at nine months old, she's discovered outside the family home in a cardboard box, allegedly left there by Elizabeth. So in 1993, after repeated requests by Elizabeth, Fritz allows the, the enlargement of the prison, putting Elizabeth and her children to work for years, digging out soil with their hand. Oh, my God. And this made the prison go from 35 metres squared to 55 metres squared. Oh, that's a lot. I know. 26th of February 1994, the fourth child, Monica, is born. In December 1994, 10-month-old Monica is found in a pushchair outside the entrance of the house. Um, shortly afterwards, Rosemary receives a phone call asking to take care of the child. The caller sounds like Elizabeth, um, but it's assumed that Fritzl used a recording of her voice. Rosemary did actually report that incident to the police, expressing astonishment that Elizabeth knew their new unlisted phone number. Suspicious. Well, yeah. In 28th of April 1996, Elizabeth gives birth to the twin boys. And as I said, one dies just three days later. The surviving twin, Alexander, is taken upstairs at 15 months old and discovered in similar circumstances to his sisters. 16th of December 2002, Felix is born. According to a statement by Fritzl, he kept Felix in the cellar with Elizabeth and her two oldest children because his wife could not look after another child. Well, maybe (sighs) stop raping your daughter. Yeah, and then 19th of April 2008 is when Fritzl arranges for the critically ill Kirsten to be taken to hospital and then 26th of April um, is when he finally releases Elizabeth, Stefan and Felix from the cellar Um, and he says tells his wife that Elizabeth decided to come home and obviously that starts the police's questions so in 19th of March 2009 after a four-day trial in the town of St Paulton and three weeks before his 74th birthday, Fritzl pleads guilty to the charges of the murder by negligence of his infant son and grandson, um, as well as the decades of enslavement, incest, rape, coercion and false imprisonment of his daughter Elizabeth and is sentenced to life imprisonment. So that wasn't his first ever crime. Oh, really? No, I mean, it's a pretty serious crime, I have to say. Tell me how he escalated. Okay, so in 1967... Fritzl broke into the Lynn's home of a 24-year-old nurse while her husband was away and raped her while holding a knife to her throat, threatening to kill her as she screamed. And according to an annual report for 1967 and a press release the same year, he was also named as a suspect in a case of attempted rape of a 21-year-old woman and was known for indecent exposure. So he had a family knowing that that would just give him free reign, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in a well he was also for that arrested and served 12 months of an 18 month prison sentence um however accord in accordance with austrian law 
his criminal record was expunged after 15 years. So as a result, when it was like came to about 25 years later, when he applied to adopt Elizabeth's children, his children, um, social services didn't know his entire criminal history because it was wiped. After his arrest, this is even more monstrous, Fritzl claimed that his behaviour towards his daughter did not constitute rape, but was consensual. What? No. Fritzl said in his, um, so he had like therapy and stuff and assessments. He always knew the whole 24 years that what I was doing was not right, that I must have been crazy to do such a thing, yet it became normal to lead a second life in the basement of my home, of course. Um, Regarding... Regarding his treatment of the family he had with his wife, Fritzl stated, I am not the beast the media make me to be. Regarding his treatment of Elizabeth and her children, the cellar, he explained that he brought flowers for Elizabeth and books and toys for the children oh, in the bunker. Oh, all okay there. Mm. And he'd often watch videos of the children and make meals with Elizabeth and the children. And he decided that he would imprison Elizabeth after she did not adhere to any rules anymore when she became a teenager. She would spend all night in bars and come back stinking of alcohol and smoke. That's a teenager, in it? Yeah. I tried to rescue her from this swamp. I organised her a job as a waitress, but sometimes there were days when she would not go to work. Fritzl said he, his daughter had tried to run away from home twice and hung around with persons of questionable moral standards. He insisted that that is why I had to arrange a place where I gave her the chance by force to keep away from the bad influences outside that his daughter was acting out like that because he was already abusing her and she was Mm. reacting to abuse he and he said do you know what and he said it was great to have a second proper family in the cellar with a wife and a few children And he denied allegations that he threatened to gas his cellar family if they tried to escape. But he added, I am sorry to say that I told them they would never get past the door because they'd be electrocuted and die if they tried. Reflecting on his childhood, Fritzl initially described his mother as the best woman in the world and as strict as it was necessary. Later, he expressed a negative opinion of his mother and claimed that she used to beat him and hit him until he was lying in a pool of blood on the floor. It left him feeling totally humiliated and weak. Um, my mother he says my mother was a servant and she used to work hard all her life I never had a kiss from her I was never cuddled although I wanted it I wanted her to be good to me he also claimed that she called him a satan a criminal a no good that he had a horrible fear of her so when he after they first got married and bought his house his mother moved in with them and over time their roles reversed and his mother came to fear him Eventually, he also admitted he'd later locked his mother in the attic and bricked up her window after telling neighbours that she'd died. Oh, he entombed his mum in the attic? Yep, and he kept her locked up until her death in 1980. Theme here, and nobody knows how long his mum had been locked up in there, but there's speculation that it was up to 20 years. So in a report by a forensic psychiatrist, Fritzl's mother is described as unpredictable and abusive. Fritzl referred to himself as an alibi child, meaning that his mother only gave birth to prove that she was not barren and could produce children. Fritzl claims that his pathological behaviour is innate. During his prison stint for the earlier rape conviction, he admits that he planned to lock his daughter up so that he could contain and express his evil side. He said, I was born to rape and I held myself back for a relatively long time. I could have behaved a lot worse than locking up my daughter. Ma. Um. So the forensic psychiatrist diagnosed Fritzl as having a severe combined personality disorder, which included borderline, schizotypal and schizoid personalities and a sexual disorder and recommended that Fritzl receive psychiatric care for the rest of his life. Yes. 
that guy should so that is, be released. That is my um, monster story, and I'm sorry it's so awful. That was, yeah, pretty full on. But I don't know where she's at now, but she, her and at least five of her children survived. Yes. Wherever she is, I hope she is having all the therapy. And the best life <laughs> she can have, yeah. Mm. Because she survived, and that's fucking huge. I can't believe that his wife didn't know. I'm sorry. I just can't. I can't believe that he's this monster to his mum and his this one daughter, and no one else knows anything. I just find it. Yeah, that doesn't. It doesn't add up, does it? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, be suspicious of people building swimming pools. Mm. Yeah, Jesus, pretty fucked up. <laughs> sorry, Sean. <laughs> You said mon- you suggested monsters. I know, and it was the first I know, I liked it. It was good. Monsters are good. It's cool. So yeah, you're rocking slightly there, Sean. Are you okay? <laughs> oh fucking hell! It what a horror! What an absolute horror! Have you got any Survivor of the Week stories to like no, in the mood? I don't have any Survivor of the Week stories at all. Oh, I didn't give my sources for my story. It was The Guardian and Wikipedia and The Sun. Mine was all just The Guardian and I also listened to a YouTuber and I can't remember her name. But to be fair, she did she did talk talk a bit too long and I gave up on listening to her. And okay, fair enough. Um, Wikipedia said. So, Sean... All that's left to say is... Be cautious of charming moustaches. They may be hiding evil. (laughs) And... Keep on surviving! surviving!